Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your presence here with us today. And we thank you for your sovereign hand in history, uh, leading your church to this place, calling us to trust, calling us to stand on the firm foundation of your word, a word that you spoke when time began and have been speaking. And so, Father, I pray that we would continue to stand on that faithful word until that day that you return. And as we dive into Second Peter today, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to teach us, to illuminate to us the truthfulness of your word and what it means for us today. I pray that my words would be your words and that they would be used to transform me and everyone listening here. We need you to do that work and we invite you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Before we do anything today, I'm calling you out, Dan. Yep, Dan Eckert. You want to stand up for me for a second there, brother? I didn't take you on stage with me, but uh, my brother Dan, who, yep, there he is. Yep, you've never seen him in a t-shirt before unless you've helped out. Uh, with VBS. Dan dresses for Walmart in ways that I've never dressed for church on a Sunday, much to some of your chagrin. Um, Dan, he will go in a three-piece suit. to. In fact, I've seen him before at Walmart and thought, Dan, you got a meeting to get to? Are you slipping in some shopping along the way? Nope. Dan's just dressed to the nines. And uh, so he emailed me this week, and uh, I emailed back, told him I was preaching, and so uh, he should wear a, a t-shirt and jeans today, thinking, there's no way that's going to happen. Well, there he is, and might I say, you're looking mighty fine today, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, now that gave me a laugh today. And let's face it, we've needed a laugh, because these, uh, these last few weeks in Second Peter, they've been heavy. Um, it's, it's been heavy for those who are teaching it. It's heavy for us who are hearing it um, to be reminded week after week of uh, false teachers, their character, their conduct, the, uh, the risk of them infiltrating the church and the damage that they can do week after week of looking at both their fruit and also their fate. Uh, it's heavy. And it's a, it's a pretty stark contrast between how we started in Second Peter Second uh, Peter 1 is just a beautiful chapter, full of hope, full of beautiful reminders and wonderful application and encouragement. And then you get into chapter 2 and it's like, Whew, why? Why are we focused on this so much? Can we get back to the, to the, to the light, the, the encouraging, the, the refreshing elements of the Word? And yet it's important, isn't it? And it's no less loving than what we read in chapter 1, especially if the wolves are coming and you're the sheep. Right? We've talked about this before. If there's a tornado, please blare the siren. If the bridge is out, please put up a sign. And if there are false teachers, if there are wolves that are coming, then then prepare and protect the flock. 
by whatever means necessary. And we see Peter as a good shepherd doing just that, reminding the people of things that they already know, truth that they are already walking in and standing on firmly and reminding them that these false teachers, if they're not already here, they're coming in the last days. Well, we've been in the last days now for about 2,000 years, right? And so those false teachers are probably here and have been here for a while, aren't they? And yet, Peter's directive to his readers, it's not outdated. It isn't, oh, okay, well, they're here now, and so now what do we do? Actually, what he gives them, the truth that he calls them to, what he draws their eyes to, is exactly for what we need in the midst of a culture that rejects their Creator, that rejects the created order that rejects everything that the Word of God stands for, including the Word of God itself. And so what do we do? Well, we do exactly what they were called to do in this passage. And so this passage is pertinent for us to grapple with today, both in the encouragement and the instruction that it offers, but also to the scoffer to the one who mocks the Word of God. Oh, this passage is so important for us to wrestle with today. And so we're going to do that together. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. And we're just going to work our way through this passage, slowly but surely. Let's start in verses 1-2 through 2 and follow along with me as I read. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, Peter says. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here we see Peter once again making his intentions clear for why he wrote First and Second Peter. Similar to how he did back in chapter 1, verses 12-13, through 13, if you recall, where Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So here's Peter believing he is at the end of his life, believing that he doesn't have much time left on the earth to shepherd these sheep. And he wants his readers to be reminded of their foundation. That's what he goes to. That's what he deems is most important for them to be reminded of. Things that they already know. Stuff that they are already walking in. Well, I want you to be real aware of this all the more. I want you to remember the predictions made by the Old Testament prophets, namely those regarding Jesus. He wants to remind them of the whole of what Jesus taught while He walked this earth. Teachings carried on decades later by the Spirit-filled ministry of the apostles, Peter himself included. And even though what he was saying was nothing but review For these believers, truth again that they were already walking in, already living out, already standing firm upon, Peter wanted them all the more, all the more to be reminded of the truth of the full counsel of God's Word and to allow it to stir them 
to stir them to a faith that would not go stagnant. And so that's what we see Peter doing here. And so if you've ever wondered the question, and I know pe- people wonder it, or they ask it, or maybe they don't ask it because they're afraid uh, that people will actually uh, hear that they're wondering these questions, like, why should I go to church? Like, seriously, why, why should I go to church week after week after week? Or, hey, I already like kind of checked off on my Bible app, the read the Bible in a year plan. Why do I have to read it again? I've already read it. Like, I, I read uh, Corduroy a hundred times when I was a kid, but, like, I'm, I'm an adult now. I don't need to keep rereading books that I've already read, so why would I continue to read the Word of God? And yet, Peter here, closing out his second letter, possibly his final letter that he pens to this congregation, this fellowship of believers, says... I know you're walking in it. I know you know this. I know you're living this. But all the more, I want you to be stirred by remembrance of the truth of the full counsel of God's Word. I want this truth to wash over you, to renew you, to make its full effect in you. And beloved, that is why we come Sunday after Sunday and sit underneath the preaching of the Word. That is why we open up our Bibles throughout the week and, and glean from the teachings of Scripture. It's because the Word of God is living and active. And it is the agent that the Spirit uses to slough off all of the junk of this world that clings to us as we walk through it day in and day out. And it cuts away at that. It refines us. It stirs us to a life of faith that we are called to live. And so that is why week after week, day after day, we come and we sit here or we go to our quiet studies or if you're a mom, you pull the, the apron over your head, right? And just right, right there because the kids are so loud and right there and they won't even let you get in the bathroom without reaching under the door, right, Olivia? And so you find that quiet place, even if it's not really a quiet place, and you get your face in the Word and let it take its full effect. You see, Peter understood for these believers exactly what we teach all of our our sparkies and our cubbies and our TNTers, the truth that we know so well in in 2 Timothy 3, right? That all Scripture is God-breathed. That it is profitable. That it is useful. that, That we need the Word of God. And that includes the prophets, even when they're scary and we're not really sure what's going on there. That includes the Gospels, even though you're like, man, I, I swear what I read in Matthew is the same thing I'm reading in Luke. Why do I need to read all That includes the teachings of the Apostles, and I don't care how many Ephesians studies or Colossians studies you've done. That includes the book of Revelation. That the full counsel of God's Word we let take its effect day in and day out in our lives to bring about the fruitfulness that God intends for it in our lives. Peter knows that, your first point in the outline, every believer continually needs the full counsel of God's Word to help stir a sincere faith. And yet Peter doesn't want his readers to simply hear the same old truth and tip their caps and go on their merry way. This is not some kind of mindless doxology or tired theology that we're talking about here. Instead, Peter reminds them and us today of these transformative truths of God's Word to stir them up 
In the Greek, it means to, to awaken or to arouse. To, to, and in this case, as he's reminding them of things that they already know, to reawaken, to re-arouse. I want this to stir you. I want this to reawaken you. You're already up? Great. Be really up. You're already standing? Great. Keep standing. You're already walking? Great. Keep walking. I need you to know this because soon I am not going to be here to tell you this anymore. Senior saints, I know you feel this. As you look at your grandchildren, as you look at your children, as you look at your great-grandchildren, you look down at them and you want to say the same thing to them again in a way that just sinks into their hearts, in a way that makes the scales fall off and they say, Oh, I get it now. I, I, I feel it with my kids. I feel it with my kids when I look down at them and they're just looking up at me like, yeah, sure, Dad. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I, I really want you to get this. I really want this to take hold of your heart. I really want to just see the light go on in your eyes. And, and, and my nine-year-old is still looking at me like, yeah, Dad, I know. <laughs> I get it, you know, in all the innocence. He's got it, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it yet. And so I'm going to keep reminding. I'm going to keep stirring, Right? And that's what Peter is doing here in love to these believers. I told you the wolves are coming. And so the best thing that I can do for you is to keep stirring, to keep reawakening, to keep rearousing this reality of a life lived in faith. And he's wanting to stir them up to sincere minds, a phrase that it can also mean pure or uncontaminated understanding. In other words, I am writing to reawaken you to a sincere understanding of God's Word. And what is a sincere understanding of God's Word? Does that mean you've got uh, the right systematic theology book memorized from cover to cover? Is that a sincere understanding? For those of you who are Awana leaders, we just saw you hand out how many Timothy Awards last night. Does it mean that you have memorized a good chunk of Scripture or can regurgitate back large chunks of Scripture? I know every single one of those Awana leaders would say, no, that's not the point. Because a sincere understanding takes root in our lives, doesn't it? A sincere understanding is knowing more than the right answer. I can, I can parade up here a whole line of youth group kids who know the right answer. Frankly, I can parade up here a whole line of Awana kids who know the right answer. But knowing the right answer and having a sincere understanding of God's Word is different, isn't it? Steve Kester, would you agree? And he's the commander and the commander-in-chief, head of the elder board, right? Boy, I mean, if he's shaking his head, that's a double yes. A yes and amen. I love it. And so what is a sincere understanding? Well, we saw this back in chapter 1, 5 through 8, and we see it elsewhere in Scripture. A sincere understanding of God's Word should stir active obedience. Flip back over to chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, where Peter calls his reader to a faith that is supplemented with obedience. Remember that faith, that it's, that it's housed, that we stop at nothing to furnish the household of faith with everything that it needs to thrive. And all of this is found in, in an active obedience, a life lived for Jesus. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities 
are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective. What? Unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's possible for us to win the Timothy Ward and not get it. It's possible for us to be the youth group kid who can pop up their hand in every single question that's asked and not actually get it. It's possible for you to be the Bible college student who graduates and doesn't actually get it. It's possible for you to be at a church like Harbor Shores, an amazing church who stands on God's Word and teaches it week after week from cradle to the grave and to not get it, isn't it? We know it is. And we can think of those who have sat in these seats through the years who have been brought up in the faith and have run in the opposite direction of it and it breaks our hearts and it should And so what we see is that a sincere mind, a pure understanding, a real understanding of the whole counsel of God's Word is one that leads to a life lived. James echoes that in James 1, 22-25 where we read, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What a beautiful promise that is. That when we don't just stare at the Word, but when we live it. When we don't just say that we believe it, but what we say we believe is carried out in who we are and how we live, that is a blessed life. That is a fruitful, that is an effective life for the kingdom and our King. Amen? Amen. So Peter's writing to help sure up the foundations of his readers. Again, readers who Peter knows were already standing firm and walking obediently, and yet Peter reminds them all the more the necessity of God's Word out of love for his sheep. Not just because he knows that this is the way in which we have an effective and fruitful life for our King, but again because he knows the wolves are coming. Follow along with me as we read Verse 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I love the redundancy. (laughs) But it proves the point, doesn't it? They're going to come and they're going to do it. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I love Warren Wiersbe's definition of a scoffer. He says, it's one who takes lightly that which should be taken seriously. Let that sink in for a second. One who thinks lightly of that which which should be taken seriously. Can you think of anything in here that should be taken seriously? 
And I'm not just talking about where we came from or who we are, but also what awaits. Can you think of anything that should be taken seriously that should not be scoffed at? I can think of a couple thousand pages. Keep in mind that we are still very much talking about false teachers here. He didn't change up what we were talking about. He didn't move on from false teachers and are now talking about scoffers. You can actually take that word in the Greek and it can actually mean false teacher too. But he uses two different words. A different one in chapter 2 and a different one here in chapter 3. Both can mean false teacher. But the one in chapter 2 highlights somebody who teaches false doctrine. Who teaches what is false. Here in chapter 3, we see the word scoffer or mocker. And some translations do use false teacher, but it is to emphasize the one who mocks what is true. And it's two sides of the same coin, isn't it? Someone who is actively teaching what is false is at the exact same time actively mocking what is true. Actively scoffing at what is true. And it's no question both are true of the people who are reading about in Second Peter. Of these scoffers, Peter makes crystal clear to his readers and to us as well, the next point on your outline, those who stand on the truth of God's Word should not be surprised when others scoff at it. He says, don't be surprised by this. In these last days, a, a term that doesn't necessarily mean the, you know, the, the final seven years or, or anything like that, but a term that means as soon as Christ went up and we find ourselves in the church age, we find ourselves in the last days. We are in that pregnant pause until that day when our King comes back. And in these last days, what does he say? Scoffer's going to scoff. You're going to have them, and they're going to do what they do. Scoffers are going to scoff. Do not be surprised. There will be those who mock the truth of God's Word and try to make those who stand on the Word by faith seem like primitive fools. You ever feel that way? It might happen face to face. It might happen when you, when you watch a YouTube video or you, you click on an article and you read halfway down and they start talking about you like you're a, like you're a caveman. Or that you didn't fully evolve from the monkey like they think you did and, and you're just kind of like, you know, ooh, ooh, Bible, ooh, ooh, Creator. Like, you ever feel like that before? That's what the scoffer does. They scoff in a way, they are, they call you a fool. <laughs> Makes you feel so dumb, so foolish, so primitive. And what Peter says is, don't be shocked. Because as we face the scoffer, as we face the one who mocks, we can be reassured that the very word that they scoff at, that the very word that they mock has just been proven true by the fact that they exist. The fact that they are there saying what God knew all along that they would say. And to the person who's here today and wants to say, well, that is intellectually dishonest. That is circular reasoning. You're saying that if I, I disagree with your, your scriptures, that that proves it true? That's not, that, that can't be right. Well, yeah, yeah, actually it can. And it is. But the fact that the Word of God predicted your existence to look at it, to scoff at it, to mock it, and to make me feel like a fool for believing what is true, no, that very much does 
prove the validity behind it. But if you really wanted to, we could take a field trip together. We could go to the Bible Museum. And you can learn about how this word came to be and how it was sovereignly preserved. And you can learn all about Papyrus 52 and you can learn all about all of these things that that through the years show the validity of this word up against any other word that calls itself a word. Or we could go to the Creation Museum and we could have an honest conversation about our origin. We could go to the Ark Encounter and we could have an honest conversation about the scientific data surrounding the flood. Because that couldn't actually happen, could it? Or you could sit down. I, I, I'll pay for your cup of coffee with a, with a Sean McDowell. I'll pay for your cup of coffee with our, with our brother Carl Kirby. And you can sit down and you can talk philosophy until you are literally blue in the face. And they will look at you and they will smile and they'll say, but have you thought of this? Or you know what? If you don't want to do a face-to-face, I could buy you all the C.S. Lewis books you want. And that brother can, that brother can make you see the validity of the God who you mock and the Savior who you disregard. We could do that. But do you want to? Do they want to? Do they honestly want to? Peter says they don't. Did you catch it? At the end of verse 3, we read, I have to flip back because I lost it. Where is it? I don't know. It's in there though. You know. (laughs) There it is. Knowing this, that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That that is actually what they are interested in doing. And that's our next point on the outline. The scoffer is more interested in protecting sin than embracing truth. And that's a problem, isn't it? When you're looking for the truth in history, when you're looking for the truth in archaeology, when you're looking for the, the truth in science, when you're looking through the, the, the truth in, in textual variants, when you're looking for the truth in humanity, when you're looking through the truth in biology, it gets really hard when my main goal is to hang on to my sin. To hang on to my top dogness. To hang on to my say in my life and my inability to bow a knee to anything other than what I want to. It gets real hard to have an honest intellectual conversation when honesty gets off the table. And what is more important is protecting the sin that I want to hold. And so you can look up debates where really smart men go against each other. But what you come to eventually is at the end, there's a agree to disagree. And why? Because one person is walking out holding one thing and another person is walking out holding the other. And it's a heart of sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, by their sin, what do they do? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's right there. We can have an honest conversation about what is right there. Unless you don't want to have an honest conversation. Because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so let's take a look at how these scoffers are specifically scoffing in verse 4. It says, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, meaning the Old Testament fathers, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So let's just take that statement right there and look at some of the, uh, some of the outplay from that statement. First thing that we see is they are rejecting the return of Christ, right? Where is he? He's not here. He said he was going to be. So if he's not here now, then we can conclude that he'll never be here. He hasn't come back. It's been what, 30 years? He's not coming back. There's no way he's coming back. Now, how about the judgment of Christ? Because if he's not coming back, all that Matthew 25 stuff, all that end of the world stuff where he was going to come back as king and judge the sheep and the goats and, and, and he was going to come in and usher in this new kingdom. We don't have to believe that. Oh, but let's, let's keep going a little further because if we can reject the return of Christ, if we can reject now the judgment that he predicted, we can reject everything about his person and his work and his teachings. Wait, he's not the Messiah. He's not the one that the prophets spoke about. Oh, and let's talk about your prophets. They've been dead for how long? And you put all your stock in this guy who hasn't come back? Your prophets who spoke of a a Messiah who would come and die as our Savior in, in Isaiah 53? Yeah, we know all that. That hasn't happened. It hasn't happened now. And guess what? It's not gonna happen. And also that day of the Lord, that day of the Lord that you read about in every single prophetic book, this day that's going to come. The Messiah didn't come. The Savior didn't come. Your prophets weren't right. And when you look at creation, everything is just kind of spinning madly on And so what do they say? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so really what we see and what they would conclude is we have a created world, maybe, maybe at best, we have a created world. And maybe at best, there is a creator. Does this sound familiar at all? But he's not active. He's not here. He's not present. He kind of just set things into motion. And now it's just kind of going. And it's just going to go. Because that's what our creation was made to do. He's not here. I know what the prophets were saying. But he's not coming. And guess what? He's not coming again. And so this is what we have. And we might as well just make the most of it. And so, Peter, I love how he addresses this unapologetically. You would think at this moment, 
Right? We've had Carl Kirby here. Some of you have heard apologists before. You've heard a, a Sean McDowell before. You've heard somebody who gets up and says, Oh yeah, hey, that's a really good argument. I'm going to flip this on its head. Here we go. Boom, boom, boom. And you think this is probably the moment where Peter is going to take out his, 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 his golden gun. Right? His magic bullet. And he's like, Oh, but have you thought about this? Look at how Peter addresses the scoffer. And may we learn from his response to have the same courage, the same faith, the same foundation that he had to address the cry of the coming scoffer in his day. He says, For they, the scoffer, deliberately overlook this fact. This fact. Ooh, here it comes. We're going to be talking about bones. We're going to be talking about carbon dating. We're going to be talking about... What, what, what facts are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed then was deluged with water and perished. Wait. So your smoking gun is Genesis... One through six? Your smoking gun is creation and the flood? Really? Really? Let that sink in. That Peter would confidently answer the scoffer who doubts the Word of God with the Word of God. Peter's argument seems a little confusing at first because it isn't what we would typically think to do. But what he's doing is turning the scoffer's argument on their head just a little bit. The scoffers were allowing their present to inform their past and their future, really. They were looking at where they were today, what was happening today, and what was not happening today, and say, oh, well then, this is how it's always been. And that means this is how it's always going to be. I don't see Jesus today, so I'm not going to see Him tomorrow. And if I don't see Him today, that wasn't really Him yesterday. And so whatever they were talking about way back then, we can let go of it. And yet Peter calls them back to the Word. They were doing a form of a $10 Word known as uniformitarianism. And we see this a lot in evolutionary theory, right? Little small changes over time. Nothing big and catastrophic like a flood or like the world being spoke into existence, but rather little changes that happen over time to create where we are now. Peter was dealing with this then. We still deal with this now, don't we? By a whole lot of people with a whole lot of letters before and after their name that make you feel even dumber. Right? And yet Peter called them back to the Word. Peter says, I don't care what's happening today or 2,000 years into the future. Your experience today doesn't negate what the Word of God says. What it's always said. Because His Word came forth long ago when the heavens and earth 
were spoken into existence. That same God who by His Word separated the waters and called forth the land out of nothing as an act of His glory is the same God who by that same Word caused those same waters to flood His world as an act of judgment. That's Peter's argument. That when you look at the Word, you see exactly what happened in our past And what we need to know in our present is going to be a type of what happens in our future. And yet you, because of your sin, scoff at the very word that you should not scoff at. And so while others scoff, he commands us to stand. Peter is in every way calling the eyes of his reader, calling our eyes Back to the Word of God is our firm foundation. Back to the Word of God. It's not only what informs us, the the knowledge that, that confirms what is true, but the knowledge that when stirred tells us exactly who we are and how we should live. Both an encouragement to the believer and in his argument to his to the scoffer. God's Word is at the center of what Peter says. From His Word, the world was created and also destroyed. It was His Word that were carried forth by the prophets. A Word that spoke of the One who would come to die for the sins of the world, but also spoke of that same One coming again to judge, though this time not with water, but with fire. This day is known as the Day of Judgment or the Day of the Lord, and you will read about it often if you read through the Old Testament. And we read about it here in verse 7 where Peter says, A day you can... uh, Sorry. But by the same word, the heavens and earth now exist and are stored up for fire, being kept until the Day of Judgment and Destruction of the ungodly. This is the same day that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 2, where he says in verse 12 and 17, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is, <clears throat> against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And the, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so we see the Word of God carried out through creation. We see the Word of God carrying out judgment on the world, though temporarily, though providing a way through the ark. We see the Word of God carried out through the prophets, predicting the Messiah, predicting the King. And that same Word we read about in John 1, that same Word comes and takes on flesh, doesn't He? That same Word is our living Word, Jesus Christ who lived and walked on this earth, who breathed the air that we breathe, who lived the life that we could not live and died a sacrificial death that you could never die in your place, in my place. And that same word three days later rose from the dead and conquered the grave to deliver a promise, a living hope for each and every one who calls out to Him by faith and reaches out and grabs hold of His grace 
and says, I believe in you, Jesus. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my King. To the one who reaches out and grabs hold of the Word in that way, we have a promise. And it was in light of that promise, in light of the reality of the living Word and what He did for us, that the disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, went out to carry on the Word of who Jesus is and what He did and proclaim it to everyone who would listen. And what did, what did carrying out that Word cost them? Everything. We say it often, but like, really, the, one of the, the leading factors for believing the Word of God as it is today is the fact that these men did not walk away because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Because if he would have, they would have, right? Jesus, we left everything that we had to follow you. We left our jobs. We left our families. We left our position within culture. Everybody hates us. And now we're hiding in an upper room, afraid for our lives. And you're not going to raise again in three days? Hey guys, let's hit the streets and tell people about Jesus. Hey, you have a gospel track? No! That's not happening. And so what we see in creation through the prophets revealed in Jesus, carried out by the apostles, is what comprises the word that we hold in our hands today. This is what we stand upon. This is what we are continually allowing to stir us and inform us of our past, present, and future. This is what we are continually living in light of and drawing near to God through. This, that took over 1,500 years to pen, over 40 authors to write, stands before us today without contradiction, Without edit, this is the word that Peter calls, even before it was formed in the way that we know it today, this is the word that Peter is stirring his listener by, or his listeners with, and calling them to remember, calling them to live in light of, calling them to stand upon, calling them to respond to the scoffer with, because what greater argument do we have? What greater authority do we have? And even though I've walked around a lot, I'm pretty sure that's our next point. Something to do with that. Peter's point is that God's Word is the highest available authority to speak to our past, present, and future. To speak to who we are and where we came from. To speak to our present struggles. To speak to our present scoffers. And to speak to the reality of where we are going. This is what we have. We have God's word. And we stand upon it with all that we have. And that's not to say that when we take an honest look at history or science or archaeology or philosophy or any of these other things, our own anatomy and biology, that's not to say that we will not see everything with honest eyes to validate the truth of Scripture. But what it says is that our ultimate authority, our greatest weapon, our sword both to defend and to slay is the Word of God. 
And in this day, in this dark day, beloved, or to simply say that you believe in a creator, to simply say that you believe that we were made with purpose and not accident, to simply say that there is a standard higher than our own, higher than our own desires, likes, dislikes, preferences. And this day, we need to allow ourselves to be stirred by the Word of God continually. Lest the speech of the scoffer begin to sow seeds of doubt. To sow seeds of fear. Oh, I can't say that. I can't enter into that conversation. I don't know a good enough argument. I don't, I, I can't, I can't talk like Carl Kirby. Oh man, I, when's the last time I visited the Creation Museum? I can't, I can't talk to this per- Really? Because to the scoffer of the coming day, the scoffer of today, Peter said, you know what, because of your sin, you can't see what's so crystal clear. You are, you are willingly dismissing what is so evident. And as we know, what has the power to save all man? Is it science? Is it history? Is it archaeology? Is it biology? Is it, is it, uh, is he a liar or a lunatic or is it, is it any of that? Does that have the power to save all man? No. What does Paul say in Romans 1? For it is the gospel that has the power to save all man. We have the life-changing, life-giving, life-altering, ready for every defense and offense, Word of God in our hands. Do you know it? And if there are things here today, beloved, that make you say, oh, yeah, but what about? What, a, what about my, my teacher who believes in evolution? Cool, press into that. Hasn't gone anywhere yet. And so it either means that you don't know what is true that speaks into the lie and you need to. Or it means that the Word of God is wrong. That you found the science teacher who can prove this an error. Hadn't happened yet, so get digging. Find some people around you who can help you. If it's just a question that you have in your mind, something that you, that you just can't get around, like, how could a good God do blank? Cool. Chris loves it when you randomly knock on his door with all of these questions and just come in and pepper him. And he knows some stuff, right? And if not, he can point him to Stephen, who knows all stuff. And either way, you're going to the ones who know. <laughs> No, but guys, like this is this is the season of our lives where, regardless of whether or not you're 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 a senior saint or or, or if you are a senior in high school or if you're just coming out of Awana into youth group, guys, this is that that dot before the line, right, John? This is this is the moment of our lives where we sure up our foundation on what is true, on what is not sinking sand. And so if you feel like the solid rock of Scripture is sinking somewhere, find out just how firm it is. Press in. But go into it with the presupposition, with the, the predetermined mindset that this is true versus the scoffer who says, that's false. And let me show you why. 
Well, you know the answer you're going to get every time with that, don't you? And is that truly honest? Is it any less honest for you to say, this is true and I want to know why? And so I'm going to dig with men and women who can help me understand just how true this is. Because a believer who knows that they are resting upon a firm foundation is an active believer, aren't they? But one who thinks that this is just one spoken argument away from, I mean, my Bible is one spoken argument away from shredding, but most of yours are leather bound. Uh, but, but those of us who think that the word of God is just the, the next, the next science teacher away from crumbling, then you don't understand what you're holding. And you're certainly not going to be active in carrying out the work of the kingdom as our king is coming. And isn't that part of the reminder for the believer as well? Because we know that day of the Lord is coming, right? That's the point of verse 7. That the same God who deluged this world with water is saving it up for a final judgment when he comes with fire. Very popular message today. I recommend leading with that. But it's true. It's true. And it's truth that should guide who we are and how we live today. Because we know our King is coming. We know that this life isn't forever. We know that we want to be like the virgins with, with lamps that are full of oil and their wicks trimmed and not the ones who thought, ah, you know what? I haven't seen Jesus in my lifetime. I mean, I believe He's going to come, but you know, they thought Hitler was the Antichrist. They thought the Pope during the, the you know, Reformation, they thought he was the Antichrist. So we're, we're not going to see a, an Antichrist. I'm not going to see a, a tribulation. I'm not going to see... So, so what? So what's your takeaway from that kind of theology? Because the Word continuously calls us to live in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The Word calls us to live as though He could come today and to live in light of that day where we will stand before our King and and fall on our knees before Him. And so what kind of application is going to derive from looking at that day as a day we'll never see? Uh, Jesus talked about it. The disciples didn't see it. No one in the Bible time saw it. People have gone through a lot worse days than the ones that we find ourselves in. And so, eh, I guess I'll just... What? What will you do in light of the fact that He's not coming? Brothers and sisters, to the scoffer and to the saint, the message is the same. The day of the Lord is coming. Because the same Word that formed this world... The same word that judged this world, the same word that was carried out through the prophets, that took on flesh, that lived, died, and rose again, and was carried out by the apostles, that became written word to us, it is not going to return void. It is not going to return false. It is not going to return as a user error. Guys, this is happening. And we need to live in light of it. And so to the believer... And to all of us, we see that to those who listen and stand upon a firm foundation, uh, those who listen to the Word of God stand upon the firm foundation, and those who scoff are fools who will face judgment. Why hasn't He returned yet? 
What is he waiting for? Doesn't he know that people are not even believing that he exists? That he was even a real person? Like, doesn't he know how bad he looks right now? When is Jesus going to get here? Yeah, Chris. And I really hope that you answer that next week. And I hope that all of you come back and, and see as we continue in Second Peter chapter 3 uh, the, the answer to some of those hard questions of why this pregnant pause known as the last days. What do we do with it? How do we view this? What's the point of this? Oh, there's a beautiful point. And we'll see that next week. But for today, uh, to the beloved, to the believer, to the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who is standing on the Word of God, to the one who desires to actively obey the Word by pursuing right relationship with Jesus, keep standing. Keep walking. Keep believing. Stand firm. Because your King is coming back. And you want to be ready. You want to be found faithful. You know it in your heart of hearts because He lives in your heart. And so in whatever ways you find yourself living a faithless life, faithless in the reality that he's coming back for you, lay that on the throne today and invite him into it. If it's your job, if it's your school, if it's your future, if it's your spouse, if it's your kids, whatever that is coming before living for him or whatever is not being lived out in light of him, put that on the altar today. Confess it, repent of it, and, and, and consecrate it anew in light of that day. Live like his return is imminent. And to the one who scoffs, I pray that today would be the day that you take an honest look at what you believe and why you actually believe it. That you would ask yourself the question, am I, be- am I not believing this because it's not true or am I not believing this because I don't want it to be true? And have I honestly looked because you know that it is, it is intellectually dishonest to only find an echo chamber that believes with you and to allow them to say what you already believe. You know that that is intellectually dishonest. Have you honestly considered with men and women who believe this with their whole hearts because the Spirit has put it in their hearts? Have you wrestled through the reality of what is written here in an honest way. And if you haven't, would you consider that? And if you're realizing today that you haven't, and that is what the, the rock that was pulled out that let the dam come forth, then I want to invite you today to confess that sin that has kept you from holding on to this truth, from reaching out and grabbing hold of it. Confess that before God today. And reach out and take hold of Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and your King. And if you don't know the first thing about what that means, come and talk to me, Chris, Stephen, one of the elders who are up front afterwards. Send us an email, give us a call, knock on Chris's door. Whatever you need to do in order to have that conversation, we want to have that with you. But the reality is this, and we read about it in Philippians 2:10 and 11, and we'll close this part of our service with this. And it Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him, him being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
This is a day that God's word promises us that we will all face. How you face it, whether it is on your knees bowing to your king or on your knees in fear of your judge, matters. And it's going, it's going to be impacted by what you do with the reality of that day on this side of it. Does that make sense? What you do with it before you face it. Because the fact is that when the waters were falling, it was too late to build an ark. Their day of judgment came. And there will be a day coming when the great cloud rider comes in with fire in his eyes, dressed in robes of white, and a trumpet sounds, and you are going to know I was so wrong. But it's too late. And so, my plead with you today is to consider your today in light of that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word, for it is a firm foundation upon which we stand. I thank you that we can uh, read it and study it and allow your Holy Spirit to use it to stir us, to be people that we all know we couldn't be on our own. We've always needed you. And so thank you for coming for us. Thank you for providing an ark for all of us through the name of Jesus Christ. That while you are a God who judges, you are a God of grace and mercy on those who find it in you. And I pray that if there is anyone here today that does not know you in a way that has brought about salvation for them both now and forever, I pray that today would be the day that they bow a knee to you. And Lord, I pray that for the rest of us that we would stand firm on your word. And in any ways we feel or fear that it may not be solid ground, Lord, that we would not run from it, but run to it. Knowing that you are ready and willing to show the beauty of your word. And so we trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.